You know, I'm entitled to this glory. Often a way that you discover pride in your life is through when something, something hasn't gone your way. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, I want to um, bat around an idea with you that comes from a question that was asked to us several months ago, and I didn't quite have the right framework to grapple with it then, and it just didn't fit in. But it also kind of piggybacks off of our recent conversation on acedia and spiritual disciplines. But this is a bit broader, and it's and it and it fits in nicely here in the in the sequence of of things we've been discussing, and it's essentially about pride and humility, and. Part of it is is we love listening, uh, hearing from you guys who listen to us, and some of you are going through some tough times in life. Others of you are kind of crushing it. You're doing great out there and are trying to figure out, like, how do I succeed well and use power well and stay humble when the Lord is blessing what I'm doing and what I'm involved in? And so we want to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, not that Cameron are like, oh, yeah, we're in that same category necessarily or so I'm sure we'll make all sorts of mm-hmm. self-deprecating um, jokes as we go along on this. But to think about pride is really important for a couple of reasons. One is it's a central theme in scripture of how things go wrong in a hurry. And there are so many proverbs, so many teachings about uh, being careful about pride. So there's just the whole weight of the biblical um, admonitions there about pride should make us slow down every once in a while and, and take it seriously. Um, the other one is, and, and the way that it relates to what we were talking about in Acedia, several of you have written in, interested in Rebecca DeYoung's book, Glittering Vices, and the look at the seven deadly sins. And you'll find it interesting if you pick that up, that she does not list pride as one of the seven deadly sins or one of the capital vices. And this comes from a long tradition of seeing pride as the fundamental root of all the other vices, not one of the vices themselves. So you hear, well, you know, money is the is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, but historically, theologically, the way that it's been drawn, maybe is you have branches of a tree that have the fruit that are the vices on them, but the roots of that tree or the stump of it, the trunk of it, is pride. And so, really, in order to get down to the and, and it's funny, uh, De Young's book says vices in the uh, glittering vices. She likes the phrase capital vices, not. Um, seven deadly sins. And that comes like the the Latin idea of of capitas of like the cap, the top, the overarching um, or the foundational element of like that everything else flows out of. So a capital vice would be a vice that produces a lot of other sins. And so pride then is the root of all of that, biblically speaking, and in the way in which theologians have wrestled with it. So it probably would do us well to spend a little time discussing and wrapping our minds around exactly what pride is, what humility is, and yeah, just some examples of things we should be watching out for in the culture in which we live. And um, so, yeah, can't wait to to play with those ideas with you, Cameron. Now, this is me smacking the ball back over the net to you. And here it comes. Where do you, where do you see pride in the world? <laughs> where do I see pride? <laughs> well, yeah, in myself, you know, of course. I think one of the the ways I would start here, Nathan, is... I was telling you earlier, I think it was, I'd, I'd come across this in the writings of, of a theologian whose name is now going to escape me. So apologies here. But the observation- First I time in two years. Shrewd, it was, it's okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Give me this one. But this, this theologian was pointing out that 
you know, nowadays in churches, we tend to concentrate a lot on, we give a lot of attention to sexual sins, for instance. There's, mm-hmm. there's some, there, you know, you get, you have preaching and teaching there, and there are lots of books on, on the subject. But pride is not only is it often overlooked in our churches, it's often, it's also, it's often kind of almost rewarded. So people who are, have, you know, yeah, it's celebrated pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you have people who are immensely accomplished, who have done really great stuff. Many of them have, you know, many of these people are in, are in positions of, of spiritual leadership as well. They are, you know, it's, it's kind of just sort of talked about as well. Yeah, this person, yeah, they're a little bit prideful. But I mean, look at what they've done. Look at this institution that they've started. Look at these look books at the that numbers. they've written. Look at the numbers. Look, right. Now, this doesn't, it obviously doesn't happen. I mean, we're, we're being a little bit funny in the way we, we word this. It's not, it doesn't always come in these kinds of, you know, obvious phrases. But I have, I've actually heard, I've heard talk very much along those lines. And so it's, it's interesting because in the tradition that we're, we're referencing here, especially in, in you know, a lot of ancient, ancient Catholic thinkers, they see pride as at the root of all, all of our sins. So this is the, the central malady afflicting human beings, and it's the central feature of, of the sinful human condition. So I think we're often very cavalier when it comes to pride. And I mean, one of the reasons is we just, we're, we're in a cultural moment where we put a high premium on you know, your achievements, whether that's in mm-hmm. your, you know, your career or, you know, the, your accomplishments and your talents. I mean, we, we, we tend to prize, prize those very highly, especially in the United States. And that can lead to a lax attitude when it comes to pride. So one of my first observations is that we often don't take it very seriously. We, we have a pretty light-handed approach to mm-hmm. pride, mm-hmm. especially in our spiritual circles as well. So let's talk about a definition here a little bit. And I'm should have done some research and looked this up. But functionally, when I think about the way that pride works, is it's hard for me not to go back to sort of um, Satan as the as the original proud one, which, so track this line of thinking with me, which essentially looks at the glory and the goodness of God and says, I don't want to be a worshiper. I want to receive that worship. And, and and so for me, think think through that definition as it works of, I don't know that you can, can, can you be proud? Well, pride can't be a sin if there isn't something more glorious than you. So you almost need a, a, a theocentric system in order for pride to be a bad thing. But pride is ultimately the theft of glory or the attempted interception of worship. I think. And and the reason that I want to phrase that that way is because being successful is not bad. Not at all. Being good at things is not bad. These are so so we don't want to make it sound like success or proper power or gentleness or um even celebrity. And I know that's a little bit of a Weasley one to mm-hmm. say, but even celebrity status is inherently wrong or prideful. It's not. It's what you do with the attention and what your goals and ideation is with all that's around you. So in my mind, that's like the the little move there is that pride is going from appreciating and worshiping goodness to wanting to be the object of that desire and the recipient of worship. Do you think that largely fits Cameron? I do. I mean, let's say a few words here real quickly. I want to come back to that because that's profound, but a few words here about false humility as well. So, Oh yeah. Okay. I'll give you two examples. <laughs> I'm yeah, so, so proud of the way I'm humble. <laughs> well, so Flannery O'Connor was once asked, you know, what, you know, why do you write ultimately? And she said, because I'm a good writer. 
and then the accusation, you know, came, well, that's very prideful. And she said, but no, it's not. I mean, if I was not a good writer, obviously I wouldn't write. And so that was, you know, she had a, she had an understanding of, you know, she, she knew what she was good at and there was nothing wrong with that. Now there, there are boastful ways to go about it. C.S. Lewis is the other example I want to give. He uses the, he uses this example of two people admiring a cathedral. One of them, the architect who designed the cathedral, one of them just a passerby. In the example of, of humility, the architect would have the would have the same estimation of that cathedral whether he had built the cathedral, you know, this is a great cathedral, let's say it's a good one, or whether he was just a passerby admiring it. In other words, there's a sort of disinterested quality connected to the excellence of the cathedral. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it's not arising from the person's overestimation of his or her own talents. I think another more on the ground definition less theologically rich than yours, we'll get back to yours in a second here, would be pride, I suppose, is just an overestimation of one's powers and one one's talents. But there's a wanton aspect to it where you mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's fed. You're talking what you're talking about, the phrase that came to mind for me when you were talking about your example, Nathan, is proper proportion. So if God declares I'm perfect that's not a prideful <laughs> that, that that's not a prideful statement or any statements mm-hmm. on the great because god ontologically occupies that position of total superiority and it's and that there's a fittingness to that that's not an arrogance god that's can't a, that's be a, proud that's a, no it's a statement of reality but if one of god's creatures is envious of that ultimate glory that is due to god now we have pride. Now, and we're also in deep waters here. I mean, there, there's, there's, there are very mysterious elements here when we're talking about the fall of Lucifer. But I think this is where the arts can help you out a little bit, by the way. I think one of the most incisive, psychologically incisive treatments of Satan's pride that you're going to get outside of Scripture comes from Milton in Paradise yep. Lost. I, and either that or I, was, I thought maybe you'd yeah, you throw a gonna... reference in there, but... Paradise Lost. There you go. Yeah, no, yeah, no. In this case, Milton. Yeah, because in in Milton, he talks a lot about, and I, you know, I should I should pull pull the copy off and read some of these amazing lines. But a wounded sense of merit—that's a really mm. loaded and powerful phrase because there are a couple of famous exclamations from the devil in Paradise Lost that are that are worth thinking about here. But yeah, wounded sense of merit. You know, I'm entitled to this glory. You know, this is so when people often a way that you discover pride in your life is through when something something hasn't gone your way. This is a classic way that we human beings through our own folly or, or, or just life circumstances that are, you know, this is a fallen world. Bad things will happen to you when something doesn't go right or when you encounter failure. It's one thing to say, I'm very sad that that didn't work out and you're just torn up. You're devastated. It's another thing to say that should not have happened to me. I was robbed of my chance to shine. I am I am a true star. I am an amazing person. And all of these, just there's a conspiracy against me. All of these elements are against me. You know, there's the famous line from Satan in Paradise Lost is, you know, <laughs> better to rule in hell than to <laughs> than to serve serve in heaven. That kind of that sort of attitude which is that's that's pride in a nutshell right there. You know, I it has to be on my own terms and that that sense of wounded merit. I think those are those are very psychologically acute observations that I've, you know, 
in small in small ways felt in my own life as well at times. Yeah. So your idea of proportionality, how did you how did you word that? Do you remember? Well, there's proper a, proportionality proper when proportionality. it comes to glory. Yeah. yeah. Well, so mm-hmm. I, I think this is just a little confession from Nathan is that the times in which I've been the most depressed or felt like the biggest failure are times in which I've radically overestimated my value in a situation. Like I thought more of it depended mm-hmm. on me than it actually did. And then when it goes mm-hmm. sideways, I take yeah. that personally. Um, and that's, you know, we were talking about this. I think just privately a little a little while ago of um or or last week where you know my grandpa was talking about depression and pride being flips you know same sides you know two sides of the same coin of a an over focus on self um and and that's not always true but there's like a high like I didn't do as well as I wanted to and I'm focusing on self and I feel bad about it or I did better than I thought I did and I'm focusing on self and I feel too good about it both of that right. is the root of a focus on self. And so that proportionality thing, I think the perspective there of the importance of worship as the preventer of pride is just to like, mm-hmm. yeah. when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, you know, who is man that you are mindful of him, that puts you in proper proportion right there. So it's it's not denying the things that you are able to do because you were created with gifts and abilities. It's just putting those in the proper scale of like what really matters here in the grand scheme of things and what's important. And I would say that when I see, okay, so pride is, is gripping the heart of every person listening to this. And both of us speak, I mean, it's, it's just there as a mm-hmm. thing, yep. um, <laughs> the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in your garden. It, 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 yeah, yeah, that's right. Th- these weeds are in your garden. Um, is that, but it's easier to see the weeds in somebody else's garden. And the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes when I see somebody who is arrogant or proud, it's in categories that don't really matter. Um, Like in the grand scheme mm. of things. And so it just seems so silly and vain when I see it in somebody else's lives. But, but it seems like my merit is wounded when it happens in my own life. So I'm not really saying anything profound there other than that the comparative element, even as we're talking about the comparative element, um, is alive and well. Well, I'll give you two vulnerable examples here. One of them I actually talk about in Faith That Lasts, the book. So when I was first discovering my voice as a writer, I decided, well, I gotta, I have to do a Master of Fine Arts. I got to do an MFA degree. And I applied to one, <laughs> count mm. them, one highly competitive writing program. You know, a sure, you know, I was, this was practically written in the stars in my mind. And I was promptly rejected. But my response was, you want to think about, again, wounded sense of merit. So I remember saying out loud, if I can't be a great writer, then I don't want to be. Now, that is a hysterically silly and stupid statement, but it was also an accurate reflection of where I was at the time. And my goodness, that's basically idolatry 101. And I felt very strongly that, you know, this, this degree was basically, was practice, it was owed me because I had the makings of somebody great and I needed this in my list of credentials. And this was going to just assist me in my, you know, meteoric rise to fame. So that, that there's one example. That's a, that's, that's an example of Cameron at a relatively immature state of mind. But now fast forward a little later, here's where, here's a more subtle 
instantiation of pride in my life these days. So we we've come through a very difficult season. You know, these last three years have been have been difficult. A lot of new challenges. We came out of an organization that totally imploded after the moral failure of its president, and have been hard at work. You know, with by God's grace and a lot of prayer and a lot of people helping us, trying to you know continue doing ministry work and and to build a ministry. But in the midst of all of this, I learned that I don't like asking for help, even ah. though, like everybody else, I need I need lots of help. <laughs> and I'm not by no means in my the funny thing is I'm not like one of these scrappy kind of people who's really self-sufficient and good at fixing things. That would be Nathan. That's not me. And yet I am so reluctant to ask for help. And and part of me thought, well, I just don't want to put anybody to the trouble. But as I pressed forward and talked to more wise people in my life who were willing to make me feel uncomfortable because they loved me, I came to recognize that, no, 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 you're, you're dealing with pride here. You don't want to be vulnerable in front of other people. You don't want to admit your shortcomings and mm. you don't want, mm-hmm. you don't like being seen in that position by people. And so here you are, you're struggling majorly. Hey, and you are screwing things up. You are failing in these areas, not because you're a huge failure, but because you're not asking for help. Anybody who's good at anything is really good at delegating and asking for help. So learn from this mistake. So that's pride. That's yeah, really. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that's helpful because we often do think of pride only manifesting itself in success. And you're giving us exactly the clear example of like, no pride can be our knuckleheadedness and our failure and the way that we think about self-sufficiency um, and who's really running the world and who's re- who's responsible for what. So again, it's back to a proportionality. Um, I like that phrase. Yeah, and I think one of the ways to, one of the tips I would say against guarding guarding against pride, I mean, you can, and you take it with a grain of salt from both Nathan and I, <laughs> we are certainly not authorities <laughs> on humility. <laughs> but one thing that is healthy is to go back to that Flannery O'Connor example. So when you reach a certain age, Flannery O'Connor was was pretty wise. She died young. She was only 30, 39 years old, which is mm. crazy because I turned 39 this week, and that's amazing to think about that. She was Happy only 39 years old when she you. died of lupus. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hint taken. But the 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 fact is she she had a, a very clear-eyed view of, of – she just had an incredible amount of focus when it came to her work. But usually you reach a certain age, I would say around 35 or past, where you're, you're pretty familiar with some of your actual talents, some of the things that you're good at. I think that's a very healthy place to be. Take ownership of your talents and do so in a way, fight against false humility, but also just recognize them Recognize them for what they are as gifts from the Lord. So there are certain things that, that you, I mean, I'll give you two of mine. Two things that I've always been good at. It's not been athletics. <laughs> that wasn't, <laughs> you know, it was very clear growing up in, in school that, you know, sports was not going to be my thing. But I've always been highly creative. I've always been able to write, even when I was a totally, you know, lackluster, uncommitted student who didn't care about anything. I had English teachers telling me, you are clearly a writer. By the way, you need people to tell you who you are. That's that's Mm -hmm. where community is really important. That's just a side note. But I've always been able to write and I've always been a really good public speaker. Those are two things that have always come naturally to me. And I can say that at this point without any pride because that's just true. Now, I can tell you also that there are, (laughs) I could just, you would have to sit here for hours and hours as I rattled off all the things I'm terrible at and I'm not good at. But take ownership of your talents in a realistic way and then learn to develop them. Because even if you're naturally gifted at something, 
there's going to come a time where you're going to have to work at it. If you want to get better, if you want to keep building on your craft, you have to be teachable in order to do that. So do I think I could improve as a speaker? Of course. Can I improve as a writer? Absolutely. My hope is that 10 years from now, Cameron, you know, the Cameron who's writing at that point will leave this Cameron in the dust. But the only way to do that is if you have, I mean, you've got to cultivate a teachable spirit. And that's easier on some days than it is on others. But I think find your, you know, identify the things you actually are good at, but then make sure that you're teachable in those areas and Mm -hmm. you're still growing. I think this is a basic principle of life, but it really will stand you in good stead. Yeah, I I like that. The uh, there's a a story that was coming to mind that was kind of um, popular in the Gordon Conwell preaching class circles of the the student who preaches a sermon, and as he's going to sit down, the preaching professor says to him, "Hey, it's a good sermon," and he's like, "Oh no, it was the Lord. It was all the Lord. It wasn't me. It was the Lord." And the professor said, "No, if it was the Lord, it would have been way better." Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so there's that idea of like, (laughs) um, yeah. The, the, the teachability of it and the recognition that even the things that you're good at, you need to grow into and the Lord isn't done with you. I wonder if I could... A dear p- family friend of ours had a... I got I, Let me add one thing here real quickly from my friend Al Whittinghill, who's He's a speaker. Some, some people have heard maybe Al Whittinghill, but people used to say, you know, in the mission field early, they, he would say, that was a fine sermon, brother. You know, you know everything with Al, mm-hmm. everything's always brother. Uh-huh. And he would say, oh, it was all the Lord. And Al would say, I know. I wasn't getting the two of you confused. <laughs> yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's, a <laughs> that's a variation on your Gordon Combo yeah, that's, story. That's a good way to do it. So I think giving proper credit, I think, well, while we're sharing personally on speaking, um, there have been times when I've like a number of times that I've gone somewhere. I'm like, okay, I got my I got my stuff together, I've done my research, I've written my talk, and then it's like right before I go up to speak, and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure if these analogies <laughs> yeah. work. And it's like, I have literally knelt like in the pews during the hymn before I go up to speak and be like, dear Lord, don't let me embarrass you because uh, <laughs> I don't know how this, you know. And so then in a, I, there have been times when I've prayed like that, walking up to the pulpit and then after, I really appreciate that. Such a good job. So thoughtful. And I'm standing there feeling like half an inch tall mm-hmm. because clearly the Lord made it work. And I had nothing really yeah. to contribute to it. And, and that's kind of, I think that's a difficult thing to know how to respond to um, in that. But I would say that's the point at which pride is not a problem <laughs> because you're like, but by the grace of God. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so I think that when I, when I was coming back around to like being successful in things that don't matter, I think when when you're part of something that is really spectacular because God moved, and you're aware of who you are and who God is and why things worked out the way that they did, you just, there's no room for you to take any credit for that. Uh, I mean, it's, and it's almost laughable in your own mind that you got to be associated with it. So I think that is that proportionality thing of like, God once used a donkey, I'm glad he used me today kind of thing um, mm-hmm. happens. But to, to pivot a little bit from from that side of things, so John um, Dixon wrote a book called Humilitas. And so for those of you who are looking for a research or a uh, reference on on this topic, uh, Humilitas, the subtitle, A Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership, he defines humility as holding power loosely for the sake of others. I'll give that to you again. Humility is holding power loosely for the sake of others. 
And I think there's the some superb definition. Yeah, there's <laughs> some utility there. Run with that a minute. Yeah. Well, think about yeah. So holding power loosely, so that that uh, automatically that built into that definition, it cuts against the false humi- humility idea. So if you, I think it's important to stress all of us have gifts and talents and skill sets, and if you know what that gift and talent is, that that is a power in your hand. It's a power at your disposal. Holding it loosely means that it doesn't have an unhealthy place in your life and in your heart. Because let's face mm-hmm. it, also, you could lose your power, by the way. How many stories do we have of, of really accomplished athletes having their entire lives, their existence put on trial when they sustain some injury and they don't know who they are anymore or something like that? Well, yeah, well so yeah. is, is, it, is a classic sense of confusing ability with identity. And that might be where right. pride becomes so insidious is if you start to think that the thing that you're good at defines and, and gives value to who you are. So ability and identity yes. are not synonymous. Absolutely. I mean, I've just, I named two of my skills. Those could easily be jeopardized by some of a myriad of life circumstances. You know, something could happen to me and I could, I could lose my ability as a speaker. I could lose my ability as a writer. Would that complete, if that, if, the prospect of that completely invalidates my sense of worth and my existence. There is a serious problem. That's not, I'm not mm-hmm. holding the power loosely enough. That's why, I mean, our identity needs to be safely anchored in Christ rather than our gifts and talents. The problem is we live in, I mean, our culture will give you basically will scream in your ear 24, seven, 365 days out of the year that you are your achievements. You are what you do. Mm-hmm. And you have to earn, you have to, basically, you have to almost justify your existence, earn your right to live, and show that through achievement. And that is, that, that's a very poisonous message, and it leaves the door wide open for pride. We have to fight against that. So, so is, the, is the vaccination here, or one of the questions we could be asking ourselves, practically speaking, is why, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's my real motivation mm-hmm. here? And so I think that's a, a worthwhile study on all sorts of aspects of life. But particularly one, I guess, maybe some of what Cameron's saying is helpful here. On the things that you know you're good at, why are you, why are you doing them? Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I yeah. think, is that a self-seeking, self-honoring, self-glorifying thing? Or is it, I have this skill that's been given to me as a gift to others how do I walk? Yeah, you're in exercising. That? Yeah, so maybe here's a soundbite for you, Nathan. You're exercising stewardship rather than ownership when it comes to your gift or your talent, your gifts and your talents. Yeah, that might be part of holding it mm-hmm. more loosely. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and it, so I guess part of the the spin, the corollary there then is that you see your power is derivative. Absolutely. In secondary, yes. yeah, you have to. I mean, that's 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 essential for you. as you get in touch with reality the one of the biggest lies of our culture is that the powers that you have at your disposal you know your talents and your gifts are that you that they are your own that you're some sort of necessary or self-sufficient being absolutely Mm -hmm. false and by the way most of your talents one of the practical ways the lord has seen fit for those talents to be put into you is through the help and hands of others the relationships, oh, right. the networks of relationships around you. I mean, yeah, you you are you're not totally a product of your environment, but you are deeply formed by your environment. And be- better better word than environment, which is cold and clinical, is is your community. 
And those people, I told you about English teachers who told me I was a writer. Without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. I needed them to tell me who I was. And you need people to tell you who you are too. I mean, this is we are shaped by our relationships and, and networks of relationships. So when you think honestly about your talents and even the nature of influence, you're going to see you don't know where you begin and somebody else ends. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's, you know, even when you were talking, you're kind of joking about, you know, I'm the one. Both of us had the alternators go out in our vans on the same week. And you took yours to a garage and I tore mine apart in the driveway, right? So there there are ways in which (laughs) we're wired differently with different mindsets and skills. And so somebody could look at somebody who maybe does things like I do and say he's a bit more independent, but that's not true. Um, I call people on the phone and say, hey, how did you do this? From the time I was eight years old, my parents and grandparents gave me a book and a tool for every single birthday and Christmas gift for what, 20 some years. I mean, how is that going? So all the tools that I have were gifts that were given to me. I routinely get myself in strange situations that I quickly call a neighbor and say, uh, I'm in over my head here. So even, even the people around us, I don't know anybody who is self-sufficient or independent. And I know a lot of really creative, really gifted, really talented people in a lot of random categories. And none of them It's it's almost like there's, there's a, is there a sense there of like, the difference between a 12-year-old who says they're good at playing the piano and someone who has studied music professionally for 15 years who has a, an actual understanding and appreciation for what is possible with a piano who would be far l- less comfortable saying that they're good at it. More reticent you, about it. There's more yeah. like, and, and some of these categories, like you don't know the standard of perfection well enough to comment on your own ability. And so- sure. if, Oh yeah, and that, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just saying like in a, from, a, from a Christian perspective, if, you, if you're looking at the realm of possible and Christ is the standard, like it's, I don't know, it's just, it you, almost want to smirk at people who are prou- yeah, pr- you almost want to smirk at people who are proud. It's like, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, so, I mean, again, and part of that is just the, the, the cure for, for pride in so many ways is to get in touch with reality. And the best way to get in touch with reality is to worship the living God and spirit and truth. I mean, worship, Nathan mentioned this earlier, but I mean, worship, proper worship forces you to abandon narcissism and forces you to direct that reverence and that awe where it's due. I mean, you're giving... I mean, you hate to use this kind of very, you know, duty laden language, but you're, you're, you're giving proper, I mean, talk about proper proportionality. You're giving, yeah, reverence where it is due. And part of, as we grow and as we learn and as we mature, part of our outlook as it develops needs to revolve around a proper sense of where, where honor and glory really lies. And the ulti- and if you recognize the living God as the ultimate source of majesty and honor and glory, then everything else is, you know, is going to be, there, there's a derivative element to everything else. But it also, notice how that, if you, if you worship God in spirit and truth, that then liberates you to appreciate other things with due proportion. Mm. You can appreciate a glorious waterfall without turning it into an idol. You can appreciate athletic talent without turning it into an idol. You can appreciate your own talent without turning it into an idol. Mm-hmm. But it's predicated on proper worship. Yeah, and that and that proper worship is is the foundation of true responsibility as well. 
So it's it's not an abdication mm. to to. So I I think there there could be a way in which you could fall out of bed on the sovereignty side of well God handles and runs the world. Well, so yes, but there are communicable attributes that God created you with that He wants to see you express and be good at for the sake of the other. And that's why John Dixon's definition of holding power for the sake of the other is is so wonderful. There is that there's this reciprocal relationship that happens there that comes out of worship of what then is my responsibility and now that I know who's actually in charge. So there's a freedom and a orientation that simultaneously evolve as we properly worship and get our heads pulled out of our focus on ourselves. So I think we will probably, I'm, I think it's highly likely if I were a betting man, that we would re- <laughs> that we might return to the subject of pride at some point because it's, as Nathan mentioned earlier, it is insidious, it creeps up on you, and it is. I th- I would agree with with you know the doc the ancient doctors of the church. It is at the root of all of our of all of our sins. It's at the root of the human condition of fallenness. But I think we hope this has been helpful to you as we've tried to think about some of the ways in which we combat pride, how we think about what humility actually is, what it actually involves, what it looks like on the ground. We've tried, I think we've tried our best here to to be very practical in this conversation and not to keep it too abstract. But thank you. This was, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned this, this was a listener question. We gave a pretty convoluted (laughs) answer to it, sort of we will never give around. a simple answer. I'm confident. Yes. Maybe we will. Yeah. So if, yeah, once again, here's your reminder. If you want a 35 to 40 minute roundabout answer to a direct question, <laughs> hey, hit us up. What were the anti-TikTok of our generation? The question. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Th- I like that. I want to be known as the anti-TikTok. But yes. We're the so we thank our listeners as always who are thoughtful and submit really great, great questions and stimulate a lot of our conversations. Yeah. So in case you missed it, You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Send us an email with a question at info at toltogether.com or send Cameron a happy birthday wish at info at toltogether.com. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.